John Henry Pickering, a former hunger striker himself, grew up in Anderson's town along with Kieran Doherty. In this episode of Kahuna Octawahin, he talks about growing up as the conflict broke out in Belfast, the time they spent in jail together, and Kieran's quiet strength and conviction of belief that carried him through his time in prison and on to hunger strike. Well, we both sort of grew up in Anderson's time in the 50s, 60s, and at a time when Belfast was changing. Society was changing too, uh, slightly uh, becoming more affluent, more jobs about, but still quite poverty-stricken in many areas. You know, nobody, nobody had the, let's say, wealth that they have today, although most of it's probably in credit today. It's, but it didn't, none of that existed. So for many working class families, we're all basically on the same level. Um, no spare cash, whatever cash you had within the home, within the family, etc. So that's the kind of environment that we were brought up in. Uh, most of us went to grammar schools or secondary schools, which were local teller area. You know, there was no such thing as travelling two or three miles across town. Very few people thought, uh, you'd have been seen as exceptional if that had been happening, whereas today it's common. In those days, um, you just went to the school closest to you. Uh, Big Dad went to St. Teresa's Primary School on the Glen Road. Uh, the family were from Camilla Drive, and he had uh, uh, three brothers. Michael, Terry and Brent and two sisters, uh, Maria and uh, Roisin. So he was sort of in the middle. He had been the same age as me. And I first... A lot of the things for young people in them days would have been sports and youth clubs and going to a disco at the weekend. And for the local Anderson's time ones, it would have been... A uh, very popular disco was in the Holy Child School on a Sunday night, and everybody went to it, and they came from everywhere to go, you know. And uh, Big Dakota went to that, Anna went to that, um, Big Bobby and all, we used to go, we used to all go to that there. And if I think back on it now, it must have been like, you're pretty immature, you know, we are only 15 or 16. But um, prior to that, Dak would have joined the FENA in late 71. And sometime in 71, uh, that was B Company, 1st Battalion. That's up around the Camita Drive area. And you're just done with the FENA boys done in those days. No need to go into too much detail on all that. And then, as he was coming up to 16, he joined the army. And he joined the army in B Company again, uh, which was around that whole committed drive, Lower Anderson's Town, Mid Anderson's Town. Uh, and I want to give us a wee mention to Bill Welch, who Bill Welch was his primary mate. There were two, they were stuck together and they ran about, oh, for many, many years afterwards. Sometimes you don't hear Bill's name mentioned in relation to Cairn, but he, he would have been Cairn's 
soulmate. And that's what Doc Dunley, he played, the, he, he, was, he was in the cycling as well, his family's in the cycling, uh, and he was a good cyclist. They're all good cyclists, the family. Uh, a proper family, a proper mommy, a proper daddy, if you know what I mean by saying that there. Just on a, on a personal level, I like it to be recognised, I like it to be said that although Kieran Dockery and many other IRA volunteers, men and women, uh, passed, were killed or whatever, um, in the era, especially in those early days of struggle, I was delighted that Kieran met a woman and he fell in love and she fell in love with him. I thought it was fantastic. And, um, and, and it was the real full on, you know, and it was Kieran's first experience, but that was, that was quite obvious. And it's just, you know, where when you meet uh, two kids around 17, they're the early 20s and they're first time in love, it's all, and at the harbour you know, it's all huffs and fallouts and all that. You could read that like a book. And this, this is the same guy I was telling you earlier on. He's, he was uh, seen as sort of like a, a statue almost, you know, a figure of inspiration for everybody else. And there was hidden in a huff for her. And, and I used to laugh my head off at that about him, you know. But uh, that's, that's the real, that's a real heartbreaker and Kieran's story. You know, when you join the army, everything changes. Uh, that's your life, twenty four seven. You know, it's there's no and like we would still go to the disco on a Sunday night, but that's like a, a wee outlet, and it lasts for a couple of hours, and then you're back to the billet where you sleep and stuff like that. Uh, Anders's town itself hasn't changed greatly. Since those days, well, you have the candy centre and all now. You had, used to have a big Lucasade factory, and facing that actually, which is the Fennels Club, if I if I remember right, used to be a wee orange hall, right where it is. Um, yeah, that's, that's right. It wasn't a terribly big one, but it, yeah, but near hundred percent, it was an orange hall there, um, and on up the only turn road. Not a great deal. There has been some shops have changed and stuff like that there, but not a great deal has changed. Eastwood Scrapyard, which dominated the second part of the road after the Lucasade factory, but it was gigantic. And then you had Eastwoods, where Asda is now, whereas um, with the Candy Centre, that would have been the Lucasade factory. And then you had, as I say, Eastwoods um, Scrapyard, not a wee small gigantic weight down but that's all changed. In the estate, it's pretty much, in, in my mind anyway, the layout of the estate is pretty much the same as it is today. Only there's an expansion on surrounds. Um, most people lived, I think most people, to varying degrees, lived with, um, within the same kind of budget. Wouldn't a lot of spare cash. So that meant that the kids, for example, lived their lives outside, running about. Yeah, you played street games at night and, and all this. And then, um, of course, there was an explosion uh, of civil rights um, campaigning, which led into continual 
nightly riding throughout the north, essentially, Belfast. I'm not talking about one area of Belfast, but maybe six or eight rats going on in the same night in Belfast alone. Um, so we're really stretching them in that sense uh, without us even knowing it. So that's sort of the kind of thing, times that we grew up in. When Dad uh, joined the army, uh, needless to say, he was a good volunteer, a very active volunteer, and then he got uh, picked up. He made it get picked up on the 17th birthday and interned. That's in my head that he he he, he got picked up. Um, I know that prior to that he was sent. He had to go down south out of the road because everybody in them days, myself included, everybody knew once you hit 17, you're being interned. We all knew that was coming. So that was interned. I was interned around the same time as him, probably in a wee bit longer than him. But that, I think that was in turn for at least two years, two and a half years maybe. And then uh, released in 75. He was in during the camp burning and, and that. <clears throat> I was released the same. And then 1976, he was back fully operational within the army and very active throughout the whole of 76. And then five of us got caught on a bombing mission in two vehicles in 1976. Um, we ran into a trap. How that trap was set. Well, I'll tell you two stories about it. How that trap was set. There, there's a book, The Kitson Experiment, and in it they say the IRA in 1976 in Belfast were very active, especially the 1st Battalion. So what they done was um, they, they kept an eye on the target areas, Lisburn, uh, Lisburn, Malone, right down to the town. And they looked at the different avenues or arterial routes out of Anderson's town into these. And they found you basically, basically got about four, right? Candy Way, Panicky Road North, Black Road, and out to Turbot Dresden. So what they done was they saturated because we were too active and we're going out sending ASUs out all the time. And our ASU, what they say in this book is that we ran into this and one of the undercover spied Doc, recognised Doc, who was in front of us, William White in the car. And I was driving, uh, we were in a small van, we had a uh, 150-pound bomb or something in the van, it was three of us, I was driving. And so we got to Finicky Road, north at the lights with the Lisburn Road and we turned left and it was from this Davis station somewhere where they spied that and they followed us right down to Cranmore and next thing the car came flying up uh, and they just opened up on us immediately and we drove up a side street and there was a gun battle going on. Some of us took over a house uh, a couple of escaped, tried to make their getaway, but um, eventually they were picked up. Uh, the bomb had, they sent the robot in, the robot set the bomb off. So anyway, that was us. Uh, we get uh, pretty heavy sentences from all of us, got from 20 to 26 years. Um, I got 26 years, I think that got 22 years. 
We spent uh, 18 months in remand in Crumlin Road Jail, which was a, a long time at that stage. And that's when the, seg- the protests were starting, the segregation battle and stuff. Then we went into the H-Blacks. After we got sentenced, got straight on the blanket. And that's where all the fun and games started, uh, you know, of our lives on the blanket. One of the things about Kieran Dafferty, Kieran Dafferty was six foot two. He had something like a 42 inch chest and a 30 waist. Muscular, but not bulgy muscles. It's like iron plating. I often, I often think of that and I think of, um, you know, like a Roman statue. That's how impressive he was, really. A six pack, you know, because he was he done the weights when he was about 17, McCall McHugh during the tournament. And he was six foot two, handsome, big lad, very fit because of the, the football, the cycling, stuff like that there. But his um, personality, he felt, would be quiet. And there's actually a, ser- a serenity about him too, you know. He was quiet, uh, but like he wasn't afraid to, to give his opinion if he was asked. And when he, he was one of these ones, um, you listened when he spoke because it's not that he didn't suffer fools um, so easily, but it's more of a, because he was generally quiet and very proactive personality. He wasn't uh, for sitting back. And obviously in the line, he would go first. Like it was a number of us all then, probably of the same. Loads of, loads of uh, guys around, women around that time, who liked to be on the front foot. And that was one of them. And one of the most impressive, impressive things that you can think about Big Dak, and I've, I've, I've spoken with other people about this, other blanket men about this, like that to me was the foremost H-Black prisoner who the screws were afraid of. They were actually afraid of him because I take it as build, but it's his demeanour, this... Not, I don't want to say serious, make my dad serious, because that's, that's not true. But they had one of them faces that, that told you, don't fuck about with me. You know, so you didn't. But he had a great sense of humour, he was just a regular guy, lo- lovely, lovely guy. I don't know anybody that didn't like him, like everybody liked him, you know. But the screws were afraid of him, always, always. In fact, when they done the four squashing in our wing, in H4, they came down, I was in this side of the wing, Dak was in that side of the wing. They came down our side first, and we were fighting them. We had got a, an order to fight them. And that was for survival, because we were just coming and beating the crap out of it. We needed to make a stand, and it was our wing we got picked to make a stand. And they came out up battering the whole lot of us. So, and that took up the lunch time. So they had to come back that afternoon, and Dak was in the middle. And they came up the wing, letting on to go in the end cell, and they stopped at Dak's. And they rushed into Dax because it was scared shitless of them, you know. And like I, I talked to Screws and over the years, and you know when you're talking about uh, Dak, you could see it. The Screws had a they had a, a respect for him because Dak didn't mess about with Screws, so Screws were happy about. It. They didn't mess about with Dak, even at the although he did. There was one incident on the blanket where he got a real bad beating and uh, they couldn't get him down. There's a whole pile of them and tapping 
everybody's battering him and he's battering the whole lot And a white shirt, that's an officer, um, the SOP, who can't remember his name, reached down, grabbed him by the testicles until he blanked out. I remember that incident about him. But Kieran Dougherty is a person, just a lovely big fella, cut out to be a revolutionary, just cut out to be it, you know. And he was totally dedicated, totally committed to the struggle. There was no, 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 no backing away from that in any way, shape, or form. Um, when we were on on the blanket, and we used to go to the mass on a Sunday. Now you only had these trousers on; you had no tap on or shoes or not. But what we used to do for time and all the rest of it was we'd bring two or three, two wings into the mass. So you had these two wings of blanket men who never said, but when they go to mass on Sunday, they're all together. And I remember uh, one time this guy, and I noticed after a while, he'd be coming up and talking to Big Dad at mass. And I said to him one day, I says, why do you, why do you always keep coming up talking to Dad? She said, ah, just, just like it. And what it actually was, was he was trying to get some sort of inspiration, because the blanket was a difficult protest, you know, it was people hanging on by their fingertips, like, and it was really tough on some, some of them. And they're all really very, very young people, uh, 18, 19, 20, 21, very, very young, never experienced brutality or cruelty like this in their lives, you know, especially psychological, you know. And, and the same duck as a tower strength, the rock. And, you know, you'd see them get up and just talking to them and walking away and just, and they got something out of it. You know, we've all had people like that in our lives who if you're feeling a bit low, you're feeling a bit weaker, whatever it may be, and you go, and you meet this person, next thing you're walking away, you've got the kick back into you. One of the things I often say about Big Dak is, I was Dak's cellmate up until, um, when he went on hunger strike, the two of us were in the cell. And we knew then that if you go on hunger strike, you're going to die. We all knew that, you know. And the morning he went on hunger strike, we also knew they were going to move me out, out of, out of the cell, because the hunger strikers could sell themselves, uh, so that they could manner them or whatever nonsense to come up with. So I, that wasn't the last time I seen Doc, actually. Just remember this. So I left the, the cell the morning he went on hunger strike and on the blanket at the time we had a policy whereas we didn't go to see the doctor unless your leg was falling off completely and my name was in to go on hunger strike and Bick wrote to me because I had severe infections in my ears and everybody knew I'm quite deaf um, and my ears were in fact my ear was so bad, see if you put a finger in and you smelt it and it knocked you out. It was stinking. But we didn't go to the doctor. So, Bick had sent me a call and Bick had said to me, John Henry, can you guarantee me 100% you're fit for this hunger strike and you're not going to come off it after two weeks of some medical thing? Uh, he's worried about me. So I says, I'll go to the doctor and get the ear sorted. So I go to the doctor. Within five days, I'm in the theatre and, and the RBH, uh, three hour surgery in the year, and I was put into a Musgrave military wing for three months. During, this is during the hunger strike. 
Now, when they were transporting me to the hospital for the operation, they had overnight, they had the, the, like a quarantine, if you want, put me up in the prison hospital, and I was in the prison hospital, and in the same wing where all the hunger strikers were, Joe McDonnell and Big Dachanesians, and I knew them all, you know. And they came down to the door, and then they, they moved off, and Big Dach, he was actually just looking at me through a slack in the thing. When I was up talking to Joe, I was looking at him. But I remember talking to Dach, and the two of us looking at each other, and it was a deeper thing going on between each other, no matter what the words were that we were saying to each other. When you were looking at each other for the last time, we were quite aware of that. We weren't afraid of it. It didn't. It wasn't. Um, it wasn't imposing on him or anything whatsoever. It was just we knew it. We just knew it, and it sort of melted away. So I, that was the last time I seen Kieran Daugherty. Then he went away, and then I went to the hospital, and that was me out there for three friggin' months, and I was busting to get back in to, to get on the bloody thing myself, you know, which I ended up didn't do, but like I wanted it, I wanted it to be far earlier, but that wasn't to be.